Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who learnt the value of developing officers as an experienced Troop Staff Sergeant. He says, what do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't know how to be a Troop Staff Sergeant, but you know how to be a Troop Commander, and that's the, the only time that that will be the case, probably. So you have to make sure that you take the opportunity to make him or her as good as they can be so that when they become an officer commanding, which is their next kind of significant opportunity, they've had a positive experience. They understand the power of the relationship between a soldier and an officer and, and how they can make that work. And who knows that forms of leadership are context dependent. Warfare is pretty transactional. You know, there's not a huge amount of discussion about decisions made at the pointy end. So we have to have an environment where transactional leadership is, is absolutely appropriate and necessary and people are comfortable with it. But the journey to the transactional decision point can be transformational. Warrant Officer Class 1 Dave Hurd enlisted into the Royal Engineers in 1997 and joined three five engineer regiments before going on to Royal Engineer search teams completing his trade training at one Royal School of Military Engineering Regiment in Chatham and passing all arms parachute selection. He has served on Op Banner in Northern Ireland, Op Herricks 5 and 11 in Afghanistan, Op Telic 9 in Iraq, as well as Op Olympics in London and exercises all over the world. He's instructed at three Royal School of Military Engineering Regiment in Minley as a section commander and as a quartermaster sergeant instructor in combat engineering reconnaissance. Dave was Squadron Sergeant Major of 17 Field Squadron, Explosive Ordnance Disposal and Search, and Regimental Sergeant Major at 2-3 Parachute Engineer Regiment. He assumed the role of Command Sergeant Major at the Land Warfare Centre in Warminster in April 2021. In this conversation, wo one Heard reflects on how his leadership style has had to evolve to keep pace with the requirements of a more professional army, and how good mentorship helped him build a more productive relationship with those in positions of command. Dave promoted from Sapper to Lance Corporal whilst he was an op banner in Northern Ireland, and I asked him what the promotion card was like. It's not too far away from the kind of process that we have now, where you gather an amount of experience, and I guess the people that are responsible for you, your, your kind of managers, your, your troop management, look at you and think, right, well, we'd, we'd probably have him as a lance jack, let's put him on this course and see what happens. It was very, very much around good, good hard, solid PT, you, you develop some resilience or you either find out if you've got resilience or you haven't and then when your chance to kind of lead something comes along then um, then that's where you're judged. How did that impact the way you led? Did you get lessons on leadership there and if not what did you take from the people around you? Was it learning from others and just re emulating or rejecting their forms of leadership? So it was quite a while ago uh, my, my memory is jaded somewhat but um, there was leadership kind of vignettes. There were lessons on, it was more geared towards instructional techniques, I guess, rather than the kind of pure leadership that we talk about now. I think 
the kind of range of resource that a, a junior leader has now, it, I think it's still very important, though, that we don't lose the physical tenacity that a junior leader should have. And that was probably where the, the building block for finding out whether you could do it or not was, was first kind of realised. And then what kind of leader were you as you became a corporal and a sergeant? What ways of interacting with your troops did you use? So I didn't really apply a lot of thought to it, if I'm honest. I think I was a product of the environment that I'd, I'd been developed in, which was late 90s, early noughties. The unit I was in was, was quite a tough unit, or the, the junior leadership was quite a physically robust style. And I don't, I don't necessarily regret that. I think it was, it was the time we were in. Um, it was the army we were in. You know, you either could or you couldn't, and you got found out quite quickly. But I think on reflection, some of those junior leaders were maybe not particularly good and they covered up any cracks in their knowledge or ability through physical prowess, if, if that's the right kind of word. I, th I think we've come a long way as an army and I'll, I'll continue to reinforce, I don't think we should lose that, but I think we can polish it up into a much more rounded junior leader. And, and that's what I see a lot of more today than when I reflect on when I was a junior leader. When was the first time you started to work in that officer NCO partnership relationship as in the infantry you have a platoon sergeant and a platoon commander who's a lieutenant for you when did that start to happen in your career definitely not as a junior nco um it was very much senior nco to junior nco kind of transactional occasionally transformational kind of leadership styles and, and activities i think probably my first direct kind of relationship if that's if that's what you want to call it with a with an officer was when i was a sergeant um i was a uh, in an EOD squadron. I mean, my whole sergeant tour was pretty much Iraq or Afghanistan because that's the period of time I was a sergeant. That's what that unit I was in at the time was doing. So we had a very singular focus on operations, which was brilliant. And it was the first time I'd been in a role where maybe I was having an impact on an officer's leadership style or maybe starting to introduce them or, or certainly myself getting introduced to how they look at the world against how I look at the world and, and where we meet in the middle. And were there any particular moments on tour where you had to use that experience and leadership to help the rest of your troop or platoon and the officer at the same time? I think the kind of standout bit was my troop commander at the time had his own EOD team. I hired my EOD team. We were bouncing around Afghanistan at, at that particular point and we wouldn't often see each other. But when we did come in together... We'd, we'd talk about experiences that we'd had and, and maybe he would ask me about bits and pieces. I mean, the, the British Army's quite peculiar and we give all the command at the earliest parts to the most inexperienced people in, in the purest sense. But when it works really well, when, you, when you've got a senior NCO who's got experience and knowledge um, and a big chunk of humility, but well, it certainly wasn't common for me and I, I guess we'll get onto that, if you've got experience, knowledge and humility against inexperience, the willingness to learn, but a very different way of looking at things, the kind of fusion of the two is fantastic. It's the, the deep technical expert against the broad generalist makes a really powerful command team. And I probably wasn't very good at that at kind of sergeant level. And I certainly got it wrong at staff sergeant level until, you know, somebody mentored me and said, hey, you know, you, you don't have to be that belligerent arsehole. You know, you, you can kind of do things differently and maybe you should consider it and, and that was a, a turning point maybe. I think historically we've often tied command to leadership so if you're in the command position you're the leader but when you're a junior officer coming into a platoon or a troop 
you have to have an element of followership. The leadership in many areas comes from the NCO, the corporals, even the sappers, troopers or privates, mm. because they're the people with the experience. And it's having that relationship there where you can confidently ask them for advice and then make the decisions on it. When for you did you start to find a way to manage that better? And was it because something had not worked initially? So, I mean, the, the whole kind of sergeant bit, I don't look upon as a hugely kind of leadership developmental period. It was um, it was operationally focused. It was, can you do your job operationally? There wasn't the discussion about leadership that there is now because we were busy doing other things and we didn't have a great deal of time to reflect. I think when I moved to my staff sergeant appointment, I kind of adopted the mould or the model, if you like, of how I'd seen staff sergeants in the past. It's the only rank in the Royal Engineers that you don't do a course for, because by that stage you've you've either got the technical expertise or you haven't, and you'll be found out if you haven't. But it's the first time I've kind of sat in an office with a troop commander who I'm responsible for, in inverted commas, and I, I didn't always appreciate my role in that kind of relationship, and it wasn't until the point where I'd had a particular troop commander who, for whatever reason, we, we kind of butted heads. I was very much at the time of the attitude, right, troopy, you're here to sign sick chits and leave passes, <laughs> which uh, I'm not laughing because I think it's funny. I'm laughing at myself because I was like, what an idiot. It's just there's so much more richness out of that partnership if, if you can have a common goal, have a common understanding, clear communication, a bit of humility from both parties. Well, I'll give you an example. We, um, I sent my troop commander at the time up to do some bat sims for a, a live firing range. I sent him up with one of my most experienced junior NCOs in order that he would develop. What I hoped for was that the troop commander would, would listen to the junior NCO, who I trusted because he knew what he was doing, and I knew he knew what he was doing because I'd seen it, that you know there was that trust. Instead, he tried to command the activity because he was the troop commander. And I thought that was his fault. And he is the troop commander, so it's not his fault. It's my fault for not laying out exactly what my intent was through honest and open chat. So I was a, bit, a little bit underwhelmed with the troop commander. And we ended up in the same Land Rover, driving from Woodbridge to Otterburn, which is quite a lengthy old drive. And I was so underwhelmed with him and so convinced of my own righteousness and in such a belligerent mould that I didn't speak to him for the whole journey, which is, you know, I mean, bloody hell. My wife can't even keep radio silence with me for that long, you know, and I underwhelm her constantly. That was a point where I kind of spoke to someone. And I said, what, what's going on here? Why is this so difficult? And it was a good friend of mine who was a W02 at the time. He said, right, well, what you've got to understand is that you're the troop staff sergeant. You can run that troop. You don't need a troop commander, but you're not the troop commander. You know, your role is to be the deep technical expert and to be the, the 2IC. Your role is to make all of his or hers, hopes and ambitions at the time, come true, you know, through skillful management, technical expertise, knowledge, and all the rest of it. He says, what do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't know how to be a troop staff sergeant, but you know how to be a troop commander, and that's the, the only time that that will be the case, probably. So you have to make sure that you take the opportunity to make him or her as good as they can be, so that when they become an officer commanding, which is their next kind of significant opportunity, They've had a positive experience. They understand the power of the relationship between a soldier and an officer and, and how they can make that work. So I made a promise that I would try it differently. So this, this chap at the time was posted. I got another one in. 
and I just did things completely differently. Instead of saying, right, this is what we're doing, I'd say, well, what do you think? It was a conversation then. It wasn't direction with a brick and chop. You know, it was a, well, this is what I think we could do, but what do you think? You make some decisions, or you tell me what you're thinking about, and then we'll work out a plan. And then we walk out of the office, or when we present it to the blokes, we've got commonality of purpose. We're a united front. You know, they all know, I know how to do this, but they need to know that he's in charge. And, and it was a, a male at this particular point, that he's in charge and that he's made the decision and that I'm supporting him. Um, and you do all your business about whether you agree or disagree privately or, or in a professional manner. And, and that was that was not always the environment I'd grown up in. And I'd kind of defaulted to the, this is what I'd grown up in. And, and I, I didn't get it right. And I had to change because it, it wasn't good. So you're taking more of a leadership from a followership position and that you're offering up your expertise so that the commander was able to make decisions but the commander would look to you for advice and guidance but it required trust for that to happen yeah um and that's exactly it you know i I didn't join the army to be in charge of me i I joined for a bit of adventure and and my role is to make sure the person in charge at the time has the best possible support with the best possible experience that i can bring so they make the best possible decision and like I alluded to earlier, when everybody understands their role in that, and it's a two-way street, right? There are some who think they're in charge and think they know everything, and that's not true, and they are really difficult to deal with. But there are also some senior NCOs like myself at various points who are completely belligerent, completely adopted to a model that isn't helpful. If you get two of them together, oh my God, what a disaster. But if you get the other extreme where you, you, know, you, you talk and you understand and you have mutual respect, it... It's fantastic, and I think that's why we continue to be one of the best armies in the world. And did you use what you'd learnt there when you did find those kind of situations where you had an officer who thought that they knew everything? You were then better able to manage that situation and coach and mentor more effectively? Yeah, and I think more than ever that probably came to light after my staff sergeant tour. So I went to uh, Minley as a QMSI, quartermaster sergeant instructor. So I was um, in an instructional role. And I was responsible for teaching young Royal Engineer officers engineer reconnaissance. And that was my first exposure to them as a cohort. You know, I had them ones and twos in the regiment that I'd been in previously. But this was them straight out of Sanders, straight into their technical training. And the urge to kind of slide back into belligerent arsehole was, was strong but that's not helpful. And I was really, really well supported by a strong cohort of D and Ellies, but mostly Ellies who'd walked the walk, who'd been in the army before me, where everything was worse and everything was harder and everything, all that good stuff. They're like, you're a warrant officer now. You cannot be dealing in black or white. Not everything is right or wrong. You're, you're a warrant officer. You're now dealing in shades of grey. You know, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to look at things as they are, do the analysis, find out the facts, and then present a case. You're not making decisions, you're presenting a case to help someone make a decision. So it was a, a real strong kind of transition from the supporting a troop commander, I'm not in charge, but you're in charge, I want you to be in charge, I want to help you make the best decision to teaching this cohort. You know, th- this is a situation, these are the options available to you. What you decide to do is up to you, but in my experience, that will probably work, that probably won't, but you need to have all of the all of the factors to consider for you to make the decision. So I think, for the most part, there are one or two occasions when I did slip back into belligerent arsehole, and I can't deny it. 
and anybody that knows me will be able to furnish you with many stories. But I think for the most part, I was a bit more rounded, probably gusting more professional is, is probably the best term. And within that, you must have learned a new form of teaching and training that was different to what you learned through your time in regiment. How did you learn how to instruct people where you weren't just disciplining them, mm. but rewarding them for some element of initiative, but teaching them how to do it better? Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's really important. So when I was, I was a junior NCO at Depot, so section commander instructor, and you got taught how to teach a lesson, you didn't really get taught how to teach an individual, if that makes sense. You could teach the subject, but you either understand what I'm teaching or you don't. And if you don't, it's because you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> Thankfully, we know that's not the case anymore. People respond to different styles. People respond to different environments. And I'm sure that's always been the case. When I went back to Minley to be a, an instructor as a W02, they sent me on a, um, a defence train-the-trainer course, which was the, the new version of how to teach people. And straight away I slipped back into it, well, I know how to teach people, I've done this before. <laughs> and that wasn't true either. Um, and I had a, a colour sergeant from the Fusiliers who was my syndicate lead at um, Purbright on the, the new course. And he was fantastic. So there was no question of lack of professional credibility. But what, what he was into and what he was deeply into was the whole, the way the brain works. Neurolinguistic programming, words you should use when you're trying to give feedback and not... And I don't really know if that was part of the curriculum, but I don't think it really matters because it took me to a new place in terms of how you bring people on, you know, positive reinforcement of, um, of good behaviours and the understanding that most people are trying their hardest most of the time. So how do you get them to a place where they do that most often? And it was the responsibility of an instructor is, is to role model good behaviours, I think. There are really effective ways of correcting you know, poor behaviour. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be shy of that, but it's got to be measured. It's got to be tempered. But more than anything, the, the role of the instructor is to, to understand the subject they're teaching in such depth that they can communicate it to anybody at any point. And that's really hard. But I think we've got a really emotionally intelligent cohort of, of instructors in lots of different places now that understand the value of... It's not about the instructor, it's about the subject... The instructor's responsibility is to convey the subject in such a manner that the people they're teaching understand it and then can reproduce it. And do you think you learned something from that as well? So not only were you coaching your senior NCOs about how to interact with troop commanders, you're also learning new forms of behaviour and new ideas from your junior NCOs in that case. I was a product of the environment I grew up in and, and the army was a different place at, at that time and you had to you had to be able to kind of cope with the environment that you were in in order for you to kind of move on and, and move up, I guess. And what, what was really pleasing then and, and what is still really pleasing now is that the environment that people grow up in now is, is much more, I'm, I'm going to say professional. The kind of requirement for emotional intelligence is much more obvious now. The way we deal with situations is different. I think one of my concerns, if, 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 if that's the right word, is that Everybody's desperate for transformational leadership all the time because that's, that's what we've been told is the most effective, uh, but not everybody can do it. And warfare is pretty transactional. You know, there's, there's not a huge amount of discussion about decisions made at the pointy end. So we have to have an environment where transactional leadership is, is absolutely appropriate and necessary and people are comfortable with it. 
But the journey to the transactional decision point can be transformational. You know, the, the attitudes, the behaviours, the rehearsal, the coaching and mentoring and all of that stuff, the way you've got the, the luxury of time to learn what you're good at and what you're not and how you're going to react to situations, well, that, that's up to you how you do that. But at the point of, you know, critical decision, that's going to be transactional. We've all got to be comfortable with that. And we have to inculcate that in our training. We have to, we have, to have that balance between, well, what do you think against this is what we're doing? And to reach that point, you need to have trust in your teams that they're going to offer you information to help you make a decision mm. when it's appropriate. And you need to have a team where you know the people in your team. So if you do need that extra information, you know where to get it from. Mm. But at the same time, your team then have to trust you that when you've made a decision, that's the end of it. Yeah. The very best leaders I think I've worked for or been around are the ones who are calm most of the time, who engage with the right people at the right time for the right information. Not everybody gets a vote in every decision, and they shouldn't, because the, the responsibility of leadership is huge. And you eventually reached what many people think of as the pinnacle of a soldier's career, which is regimental sergeant major. And you did that at 2-3 Parrot Engineer, Royal Engineer Regiment? Nearly, nearly, not bad. 2-3 Parachute Engineer Regiment, Royal Engineers. Because in the finest traditions of the Royal Engineers, we say things in a very certain way that makes absolutely no sense to anybody else unless you're a Royal Engineer. So um, quite a strong effort. But yeah, I was um, hugely privileged to, to be assigned into that role. And you were in that role at a time where the regiment was going through a lot of change about its ethos and about what defined a Royal Engineer in that regiment. Yeah, that's right. So I, I was a staff sergeant in that regiment previously as well, and um, my attitude changed from when I was a staff sergeant to when I was the RSM because I, I'd had a, a lot more experience of a much more kind of broader perspective. It was a period where me and the commanding officer had decided that historically we'd maybe been exclusive in who we considered in the gang and those that were part of the gang but not in the gang, if that makes sense. Um, and that normally revolved around whether a soldier was what we call paratrained, so whether they'd passed P company, done the jumps course and wore the wings, which is still really important. And at no stage did we ever want to devalue the significance of passing P company, going on your jumps course and getting your wings, but we framed it around having an airborne mindset, being an airborne soldier rather than exclusively are you paratrained or not. But we could do a lot more to kind of bring people in. So if you weren't paratrained, it didn't mean you didn't get a seat at the table. And we, we went down the road of kind of describing an airborne soldier rather than a paratrained soldier. We had lots of paratrained soldiers, but we didn't necessarily have an inclusive airborne mindset across the regiment. What we were determined to avoid was exclusive excellence. What we wanted more of was inclusive excellence. But it was trying to communicate the intent rather than the kind of physical manifestation of a word. So this, this would mean that people could join the regiment without having completed... P company in their jumps? People would join in the regiment whether they were paratrained or not. And often in, in certain circumstances, we needed people in certain trades and employments who were never going to be paratrained for whatever reason, whether they didn't want to, whether they just didn't have the physical capacity or whatever, but the regiment would not function without these people. And the brigade, wider, would not function without these people in our regiment. So that qualification wasn't needed for the job that they needed to do? Not, not in the purest sense of the word, no. I mean... It's a real difficult balance between, aspirationally, we'd want everybody in the regiment to be paratrained, 
But more importantly, what we needed was everybody in the regiment to have the same mindset. It's like, are you in this gang? Are you fully invested in the venture that we're in? Are you going to give your all every opportunity? Are you going to bring the best version of you as often as possible, whether you're paratrained or not? And th there were some examples of, of people who were paratrained who were not, were not on that setting either. You know, they'd, they'd passed a course, they were resting on their laurels, they weren't adding as much value as other people who were not paratrained, who maybe might have been excluded, who, who were adding so much more value. And, and to kind of bring that level up, we went on this um, venture where we, you know, we started a couple of initiatives to better train people for life in the brigade, to upskill them from where they'd left in training. And we just wanted to create this positive experience. Whether you were going to pass P Company or not was a personal venture. But in terms of a regimental perspective, and I was very fortunate that a lot of my more senior, senior NCOs fully understood the benefits that we were talking about, not just the terminology that made people nervous. Looking back on your time as leadership, I can see a real change, but you've still taken the best of what you learned in those early days, which was a very different type of army in which promotion and moving up through the ranks was very much based on your technical ability and robustness. And then you've developed much more of a mindset about inclusivity, trust, and an element of followership where you're providing the decision maker with the things they need rather than telling the decision maker what to do. And then having this layered approach of then the coaching and mentoring when you went through your time as a QMSI and then into Squadron Sergeant Major. So would you say that the thing that has changed is you've developed more emotional intelligence and empathy, but you still understand the importance of robustness and transactional leadership at the right times? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really important. And CGS spoke last year and reinforced again this year that, you know, the, the purpose of the British Army from a land warfare centre perspective, we are all about training people ready for operations. But how we can train in the meantime to get to that kind of ferocious tip of the spear kind of soldier, then, then that's up for discussion, isn't it, I think. So do you think that that is the lessons that you've taken away from your leadership? Or is there anything else? Yeah, I think outing toxic leaders. Uh, and absolutely, if... If leadership styles are inappropriate or illegal, then, then of course that should be the case. But I also think that we owe it to the organisation and the institution that we could be better followers. I think the damage that toxic followership does is, is equally as unhelpful as toxic leadership. And if we all invested ourselves in, in the common goals of the team a little bit more often, I wonder how much better we might be. We like to finish each of the podcasts with some quick fire questions. Oh, good. So, first of all, how would you spend your perfect Sunday? <laughs> Probably riding one of my bikes, my mountain bike and my road bike. Not at the same time? No, no. Or walking the dogs or spending time with my daughter, annoying her. So, it's um, probably something like that. Are there any books, podcasts or films about leadership, teamship generally that you found useful and that you sometimes recommend to people? So, I would wholeheartedly, unreservedly, thoroughly recommend... The Little Book of Klopp, which is um, kind of like a toilet book, if that's what you want to call it, a little book of quotes from Jürgen Klopp. His Royal Highness, Sir Jürgen Klopp, my favourite German of all time. Right, but Jürgen Klopp, for me, has kind of really, really summarised or really demonstrated, if that's the better word of saying, like how you can be a, a determined, tenacious winner without being a dick. And what advice would you give Lance Corporal Hurd now? 
choose your role models carefully. Learn about why people do what they do. Invest a little bit of your own time understanding why things are the way they are. The human body is programmed a certain way. The, the brain works in a certain way, but people's brains work differently in different scenarios. If you want to get the best out of people, understand what motivates them, understand where their hopes and fears are, and, and just get to know them so that you have the option to frame something in the language that they might understand. W1 Dave Hurd, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's really great to speak to W1 Dave Hurd about how his experiences have shaped the way he thinks about leadership and followership, coming from an army which was very robust in which there wasn't a huge amount of that level of development, but retaining elements of that as we move into a more emotionally intelligent, coaching and trust-built leadership and followership model. What that means for leaders is understanding that we need both transformational and transactional leadership. Transformational leadership is important in the development phase when we're building teams, when we're coaching people, when we're trying to get the best out of people off operations. And that means that we can build teams that have inclusive excellence, not elitism and not putting unnecessary barriers in the way. And then once we get on operations with that trust that has been built, with that understanding of our team, we're able to make decisions quickly and then deliver them through transactional leadership. This is The Human Advantage, presented and produced by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective, on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the United Kingdom Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.